one of the major issues that we all know about within the DAO space today is that token weighted voting is really not the way. Anyone could basically buy a token off of any exchange. And now they've got rights to vote and propose changes to the protocol. And that's just not really within the Web3 ethos in terms of inclusivity to all parties. It basically rewards those that have financial capital and can afford to buy a bunch of tokens and propose whatever they want to the protocol. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? Today, we have one of my new good friends, Dan Wu. Dan runs product at Oracle Protocol. Orca Protocol makes governance accessible by creating tools around a DAO's most basic primitive people. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Excited to be here. So I just wanted to say big appreciation. The reason why we met was because I posted a tweet on my Twitter saying, I'm going to eat Denver. I don't have any agenda. What should I do? You DM me and we ended up meeting and we became good friends at uh, the Sports Castle. We did. Um, So how was your experience at Eat Denver? It was good. It was a lot. But the first couple of days in Denver, we had a team retreat with the Orca Protocol team. And then the Thursday through the Saturday was kind of hanging more around the Sports Castle. And so it was a lot of meeting folks, coffee chats, but it was really good. I was exhausted by the end of it. I was like, I'm going to go back to my hole and hide from people. Like, I don't want to talk to anyone, but learned a lot and met a lot of cool people. Your photo that you took with Andrew Yang ended up going viral. I was surprised, honestly. And honestly, it's, I have to give credit to you because I had basically was ready to like leave. There was just way too many people in there. And then you messaged me and were like, Andrew Yang's on the second floor. I was like, what? So ran back up there, saw you, and we kind of game planned on what we wanted to say to him, like, hello, sir, how are you? And we were basically, hey, we know you're doing this lobby, lobby DAO thing. We're kind of in the DAO governance space. If you need any help, let us know. And he basically responded, we're good, but (laughs) do you want a picture? And of course, I was like, yes, I like, I need this. So that's the story behind the picture. But that was pretty surreal. He was definitely making his rounds. Yeah, I'm a huge Andrew Yang fan. I'm an Andrew Yang fanatic. When his campaign first started, I was like a big supporter. I built my initial Twitter following just based on Andrew Yang and I was selling his pink hats. I created a bunch of memes that actually Andrew Yang's campaign stole. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Hey, did you mention that to him, Will? You could have brought that up. No. Like the history. Here's my thing, right? I'm a fanboy of a bunch of people, but every time I meet them in person, I'm like, I can't fanboy out. So no. I had to do something to make it seem like a more respectable approach. This doesn't make any sense. You should have just invited him on the podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. totally. <laughs> You'd be like, we got and this so, history. Yeah. You know, you didn't know me, but... So yeah, I mean, I've seen him a couple of times. I was at some campaign dinners with him and stuff like that, but Dude. I've never actually had an ability to basically come at him like a normal person, right? And so... I was at Sports Castle, I've been watching Andrew Yang trying to walk up the stairs for an hour. And every time he tries to walk up the stairs, someone else approaches him and asks yeah. for a picture. And he was there for an hour. And I was like, all right, do not want to be that guy that asked for a photo. And I want to figure out a different way of doing it. So I looked him up and I was like, what is he doing here at, at Ether? Mm-hmm. Oh, he started this new lobby dial. And I was like, okay, how can I approach him in a way where it's not like I'm asking for a photo? And I was like, okay, I just talked to Dan. Dan's working on Get me to do it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Dan's working on Orca Protocol. They're doing DAO governance. Maybe Andrew Yang needs some DAO governance help. True. Hey, it's actually smart. So basically, I bring Dan up and I'm like, hey, okay, what should we do? And then so we both read the article while we're standing next to Andrew Yang. Doing our homework. Yeah, yeah, doing our homework. reading about lobby (laughs) to Alan. We're like, okay, we're just going to introduce ourselves and ask him, how can we help with his lobby DAO? And then we show up. Yeah, like Dan said, we show up. We were like, how can we be helpful? And Andrew's like, you can't be helpful, but do you want a photo? And then so I was like, man, I don't want to be that guy, that fan. And so I said no. But Dan ended up saying yes. Straight up. He got that photo and his tweet went viral. So I'm kind of sad. No, no problem. Wow. You said (laughs) no to Andrew Yang. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. After like waiting an hour to like go up to him. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. So anyways, Dan, tell us a little bit about Oracle Protocol, or let's actually go all the way back in terms of DAOs, right? How did you become interested in DAOs? Yeah, started a while ago, I guess. So towards the end of 2020, I just for some reason kind of started to get interested in how did the best teams and organizations run? What do they do? How do they structure? What sort of levels of autonomy do they give their 
individual contributors. And so this, this was completely outside of the DAO realm, the crypto realm, just like trying to understand organizational structure and design and like, what are the best practices? Because I think we've all had experiences at our companies where there's bureaucracy, there's kind of weird gatekeeping, there's no autonomy, you feel like you're stuck. And so I wanted to just do my own personal research to figure out what did good look like. And so basically did a bunch of that. I started actually started my own podcast towards the end of 2020, as one does in the pandemic. It was called The Reorg. So I, you know, I released about seven or eight episodes and I've been delinquent for about nine months, but we'll get back to it. And so, yeah, that was kind of like a phase that I went through end of 2020. And then beginning of last summer, I discovered DAOs somehow, some way, just, I don't know, probably on Twitter scrolling. And I was hooked right away. Like it was this unique combination of technology mixed with kind of all of the things that I had been researching about, right? Like decentralized governance. How do you break down bureaucracy? How do you enable contributors at the edges of your organization to do the things that they need to do without relying on kind of red tape to be slashed and cut through? So that was the beginning of last summer and then just went down the rabbit hole. was like totally obsessed, scrolling through Twitter. And this kind of leads to my story to Orca. Before we go into Orca, I actually wanted to pull back a little bit and dive a little bit deeper into the Reorg, your podcast, and mm. what got you to start thinking about organizations and work and things like that. Mm. What was the pain point that got you there? And then what did, mm. were you starting to learn through the Reorg podcast? At Orca, we actually talk about this a lot, but the organizational trauma that you kind of go through as a young adult when you first start your career, like there's all these little tiny moments throughout your career that you're like, that's kind of painful or that sucked or why did that have to be that way? Right. And I think it was just the buildup over years and years. And you just kind of like, I just felt it. Like I felt like I had to be able to form my own opinion of what good looked like. So I could try and shape either the teams I'm on, the companies that I'm working with, working for, shape them for the better. It was just years of these little micro traumas at the companies that I worked with. And I've had really great experiences at all my past companies, but there's always those small little moments that just kind of bite you and you just think about, right? So what does good look like? Oh man, that's a great question. That's a great open-ended question. To me, it's all about autonomy and how do you enable people to do their best work without being too heavy handed in terms of how they go about the work or what good looks like for them. That's basically it. It's like, how do you make people kind of self-managing and autonomous in the work that they do and ultimately feel fulfilled in the work that they do too, right? It's not about just letting people kind of freely work on whatever they want, but bringing out the best in them. And the DAO solved this problem? Yes, I think so, because the first word in the DAO is decentralized. There's so many layers to what can be decentralized, right? So there's literally the Ethereum blockchain, right? The technology is decentralized. There's many nodes on the network that are kind of running and validating transactions. So there's like the tech layer, but really we're kind of working up past the tech layer now to the social layer and kind of the social structures and the organizational structures that need to be decentralized as well. So in my opinion, yes, kind of the ethos behind Web3 and DAOs is getting to the pain points that I was, you know, and that we're all kind of dealing with in terms of just this heavy handed kind of level of control that has existed in organizations for decades that just doesn't need to be there anymore. Like we don't really work on factory lines anymore, right? So there just needs to be like a complete rewiring of how the organization runs, I think. Let's get into how you discovered Orca Protocol. Yes, at least for me, I don't know if this is for everyone that discovers DAOs, but maybe I'm part of the problem now. But if you scroll enough on Twitter, you'll find Orca Protocol. They've just built up really good brand and kind of narrative around this kind of people first primitive and protocol that we're trying to build here. So early last summer, I found Orca Protocol. And as one does in the Web3 space, it's like join the Discord, get involved. And that's what I did. Like I basically joined the Discord and started giving unsolicited thoughts like all day, every day. I was like, oh, have you seen this article? Have you listened to this podcast? How are you thinking about building the product? Why are you doing it this way? Have you thought about this? And did that for a while and eventually became one of the first elevated community contributors for Orca Protocol. So it was like a small group of folks and we were focused on basically doing research and writing articles. So I wrote an article, I think it was towards the end of last year that came out, but that was like my first contribution to kind of the Orca community and basically just like stayed involved. And eventually that led to, I think, 
the co-founders of Orca Protocol were very intrigued by me because I was just so eager to like get involved and had just so many thoughts. So I met with John and Jules, who are the co-founders of Orca Protocol, a few times. And basically over the course of a few months, they kind of learned a little bit about my background. I'm a product manager by trade. I've got project management experience. I can be a scrum master. I can kind of do all of that stuff. So they were both getting to the point where the product was maturing and they were going to need some help kind of managing the roadmap, kind of working on the development processes of the team, optimizing how the team worked. And so they kind of saw an opportunity to bring me on full time to kind of serve as this product manager role. And yeah, I was ecstatic to join. Like it was, in my opinion, a no brainer and haven't really looked back. And it's only been two and a half months, which is crazy that maybe that's like dog years. Feels like it's been a lot longer. That's great. Having talked to a couple PMs who are like excited to get in the space and also looking for their niche, I think that's a great map for them to, to figure out how to get in. So now that you've been in, what has your day-to-day been like? There's a lot that's the same for a product manager, and there's a few things that are different, small things that you may not even notice. So the major things of talking to your potential users or customers, like that is still so important, right? For Orca Protocol, we're serving DAOs, working with DAOs every day. And so the more time I could spend working directly with DAO operators, the better. This week I had like two really good calls with some DAO operators. And that's a win for me. And last week I had a few calls with DAO operators too. So always understanding your users, your customers is always super important. I feel like there's a lot of, given that Web3 is open source, transparent, composable, forkable, there's a lot of work regarding kind of like business development or integrations or working with partners, partners, we want to build standards, right? That can kind of be composable and fit in with different pieces of the Web3 ecosystem. So that's another thing. You always need to make sure that you're being aware of how your piece of this Web3 pie works with all of the other pieces out there. So just being super aware of that and connected with the other builders out there is another big thing. So those are some of the similarities. There's just some nuances with the tech stack and how the development team works. If you're working with smart contracts, these are pretty intense pieces of code. So it's not like you can just push a change, a major change, you know, on a on a whim. You kind of need to th- really think about how you're managing your smart contracts. If you're making a major upgrade, you need to figure out and kind of coordinate an audit. So there's a lot of technical nuances that are different. But overall, it's basically the same. And then what about the writing, publishing Mm -hmm. aspects? Do you do a lot more of that? Just because it seems like so much knowledge is there on Twitter and Mm -hmm. it's kind of giving and receiving. Do you find yourself spending a lot more time in the public communication channels? Yeah, there's a few reasons for it. I think it's less about getting your voice out there. And it's important to get your voice out there and market and build a narrative. Really important. But I think more than anything, like I use it as an opportunity to kind of form my own opinions on where the product should go. So there is a lot of time for me just kind of spent in this wandering white space time where you're just freely kind of trying to form your thoughts on what this all means because it's also new and novel to everyone. So that to me is also one of like the best jobs, best parts of, of being a PM is when you have this like free time to kind of be creative. And I think there's a lot of that for the product thinkers and builders in the Web3 space right now. You need it. Your story on how you found your job and there's a theme that I've been seeing just through throughout the space. At Youth Denver, when I asked him, well, how did you start working at this role? A lot of it was like, yeah, I just raised my hand in the Discord, right? And so it sounds like a lot of these DAOs, a lot of these projects, a lot of these companies, there is this decentralized thing going on where people are finding these projects and they're really interested in, in contributing. And then the founders are picking people out of the Discord and having them join the company or the project. Before we get further into Orca Protocol and what you do, Can we do a couple of definitions first? What is a DAO? Yes. So a DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. There's so many misnomers about what a DAO is. Some people think, oh, a DAO is just like an online community of people. Or some people think a DAO is fully autonomous organization that just runs on smart contracts that do absolutely everything. Those are two extreme opinions of what DAOs are. I think today DAOs are somewhere in the middle or not even really that automated. The autonomous bit is really not even that prevalent for a lot of DAOs today. I'll start philosophical. Like I think the ethos of DAOs, right, is, and there is a saying that it's smart contracts in the center and people at the edges that are working 
in this self-managing way and contributing towards the DAO's mission. In my opinion, there's a couple primary characteristics of DAOs. Why are we here, right? I sent out a tweet a while ago that DAOs are not meant to be highly efficient organizations. We are not building factory lines and trying to optimize throughput necessarily. The purpose of DAOs is to build this called capture resistance into the organization and resilience where you can basically rely on the decisions that you make and ensure that those decisions that you make at whatever scale, right, as an individual or in a bigger kind of team or pod, that those decisions you make are executed. And so there's kind of this resilience in the system that's a combination of the social structure of people agreeing that we're going to do something and combinate. And on the other end, it's the execution of the decision that you guys agreed to. So to me, DAOs are all about this concept of kind of capture resistance as opposed to we're kind of used to in organizations, which is optimizing throughput. I think that's what DAOs are meant to be. And then underneath the hood, like there's so many components to a DAO, right? Like smart contracts are a big component. How do you optimize and automate away certain pieces of your operation that you really don't, that are just, you know, you don't need like a middleman for, right? A lot of the operational administrative overhead of just running an organization like that ideally can be automated away with smart contracts, but there's a lot that can't as well. So that's where kind of this ethos of decentralization comes into play where you're, it's more about how you structure the organization and how you structure the way that people work together to kind of, to form this DAO. That's good. So let me just explain my Web2 company and how I run my Web2 company. And then tell me what's different with the DAO and how do you actually achieve these decentralized Mm. things, right? Because I'm running a SaaS company right now. It's, It's a SaaS company in the funeral home industry, right? And so our company has these metrics that we need to hit every quarter. So the company has like, okay, we need to add this much MRR or monthly recurring revenue every quarter. And so that's our company objective, right? And we're basically company goal. And then every department looks at that goal and is like, okay, these are the things that we can contribute in our department to basically mm-hmm. try to hit that goal, right? Mm-hmm. And then every person underneath that department are making their own personal objective key results to basically push up to their department one, mm-hmm. to push up to their company one. So it's a very centralized way of organizing, mm-hmm. but because everyone now is aligned and everyone knows what's important and this is the company priority, and they also feel like they have mm-hmm. a hand in pushing that objective forward, then that's how we kind of get everyone aligned to push in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So how does a DAO work in getting things achieved? I think similarly, a DAO will have a mission and vision. You always need to anchor kind of around this high level, why are we here? And then underneath that, it's, it'll kind of operate similarly. There will be, in my opinion, there should be pods or small working groups of people that specialize in certain functional areas or cross-functional areas, however the DAO wants to structure. But in my opinion as well, basically once you get to this small working group unit, they should have some level of autonomy, really in terms of who is onboarded to that working group, onboarded or offboarded, and they should have some level of autonomy over the budget that they are basically responsible for. And so they should be held accountable. So like if we're all a part of a marketing pod and we've got certain goals or OKRs that we need to hit at the end of the quarter, we should report on those at the end of the quarter. And ideally, like the DAO, the token holders, the community will determine if we've done a decent job or not. So it's kind of this, it's not our boss that determines that. Right. And maybe we've got a great relationship with our boss. And so even though we kind of did a crappy job, everything's all right. Like it's this fair, distributed way to work. And so it's just kind of the structure of how you operate. And then beyond that, like you probably have some integrations with some protocols and smart contracts that automate away some of the operational administrative overhead. Right. So you could be more blockchain native. My understanding of DAOs is that typically it always has to start with like a joint asset. So for a Web2 company, let's say it's money. And for Web3, there's normally a token, I think. So that's like value. And then what you're saying then is, and I think what Orca is helping with is potting up. Mm-hmm. And then the DAO kind of helps manage those funds and create incentives around the value held by a DAO. Is Orca then creating pods so that different smaller groups of people can manage parts of that pool of assets. So do y'all actually split the assets off or is it 
just managing the same pool, but putting more rules hmm. around managing those pools. So I guess like mm-hmm. enabling, right, some of the teams in Will's company to each say like, hey, you own this set of assets now for the next six months, please do something with it. Is that what it's like? And then maybe like helping build tools so that everyone can see what those pods are managing and like how they're doing? Close. So the main, and we're going to get a little technical and a little more into the weeds here, but the main primitive, which is one of the basic building blocks in the space for DAOs is a multi-sig, multi-signature wallet, which is basically a shared crypto wallet where you have all four of us could be signers of the wallet. And so as a group of four, we could set a threshold of we need three or four of us to sign off on a transaction before we send any asset, could be any asset that you hold in your wallet, right? To anyone. So there's this primitive called a multi-sig. It's a Gnosis safe multi-sig that exists today. There's about a hundred billion dollars worth of, or hundred million or hundred billion, big number, a big number worth of assets in Gnosis safe multi-sigs today. So there's a lot that people are managing and holding in these shared bank accounts, basically. Orca Protocol has basically built a kind of a glorified membership wrapper around this multi-sig. So today there's no real intuitive, accessible Web3 ecosystem compatible way to really kind of manage and formalize the memberships associated with that multi-sig. So we know we call them pods. So we're basically building like a more intuitive way to manage and formalize what we believe is like this essential small atomic governance unit that we think DAOs need to scale. So the concept of like the shared bank account has existed. The ability to fluidly manage the members of that multi-sig or pod hasn't really existed. And the breadth of integrations to other Web3 ecosystem tools and partners hasn't really existed. So we're being a little more intentional with the membership management and integration with the other tools that DAOs interface with, if that makes sense. It does. And we'll see if I can ask this, but can you explain some of the membership management features that y'all are working on? Yeah. Orca protocol is we're built on the Gnosis Safe multi-sig and your membership is managed through an NFT. So when you become a member of a pod, you are minted an NFT. And we've added some nice polish to this where There's a custom image for the NFT. So whatever we decide to be our image for our marketing department, we can basically have that as our NFT and it will show up in our wallets. Once we're minted as members of the pod, we'll get the NFT. It'll be a part of our wallets. And that's kind of it. So this is where we're trying to be super unopinionated with how DAOs leverage the NFT or how it hooks into other pieces of kind of the broader governance system or other tools. You have an NFT, and now it's kind of up to the DAO to figure out how to leverage that or how to use that across the ecosystem. So we're trying to do some of the work to figure out how does this pod membership NFT interact with other tools. So for example, there's a knowledge management project management Web3 native tool called Clarity. And so, for example, like we're working closely with them to figure out how can we ensure that pod members can leverage their membership to basically kind of manage their permissions and access within the tool. So that's one example of how they're leveraging this pod NFT membership in the ecosystem. What we're saying is that as the DAOs grows, it becomes harder and harder to actually work effectively because there's just so many people, right? And so the pod, an Orca pod, basically, are groups of up to seven people that have a specific mission in mind that need to work together and have their own fund to work with, right? And so if you think about it as a company, you have a marketing department, you have an engineering department, you have different partners, and these these are basically Orca pods, right? And so mm-hmm. what you're doing is building a user experience interface to allow these teams to actually more effectively manage their money and manage their people. Yes. And, and the other thing I'll add is that the way we've built it is that it's it can support the DAO as the DAO scales and grows, right? So if we were to start a DAO today, maybe we'll have one pod right? And it's just the four of us. And as we scale out, we might have a couple of sub pods. And so when you use Orca protocol, we are kind of helping you manage the growth of your DAO with these pods. And we're also managing the relationships between the pods, right? So now we're going to get like 
super crazy with it, but a pod can have members. A pod can also be a member of a pod, right? So you can have like a parent pod and a child pod. And the other thing to add is that Orca Protocol also has two different roles within pods. So there's like this admin level role, and then there's just a regular member role. So as an admin, you basically have unirole access to add members to a pod, remove members from a pod, and basically send assets wherever you want, right? Like all the privileges. As a member, to do that stuff, you need to propose. So you submit a proposal to the pod, one person, one vote, and then you can add, remove, or send assets. So kind of the combination of managing these relationships between pods, managing the roles that individual members have or pods have within the pods is also a thing that we do. So there's not really anyone else in the space that is doing this kind of relationship management between these small atomic governance units. So that's another piece of the value that we add. Dan, I have a question. It's definitely becoming more more clear to me what Orca is trying to do. In your experience, or I guess just in general, is there a certain point at which it makes sense for a company, specifically in the Web3 space, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. thinking to engage or to think about using Oracle Protocol as a solution? Or is it better to engage from the ground up, like starting from scratch when a company's just beginning? Is there like an ideal kind of engagement point and maybe like at a kind of size that a company mm-hmm would make more sense to start thinking about solutions such as Orca? Yep. No, that's a great question. And this, we've kind of recently come to this realization of what is the target segment DAO that we're focused on. The technical co-founder, John, came up with a good point of reference, which is, I think it's Taylor's stages of group development. So there's the stages of group development. There's forming, kind of this forming stage, the initial kind of gestation period of what the group is, what the mission is. And kind of after that stage, there's the storming phase, which is like, okay, we thought we were going to have a great time, but things went off the rails and we don't really know what's going on. So we're like trying to pick up the pieces. And basically on the upswing out of this storming phase, there is the norming phase, which is you come out better and stronger and faster after you've picked up the pieces and really understand how you need to operate as an org. And so in terms of target segments for DAOs, we're really kind of focused on that norming stage of DAOs, which is like, the most mature, they understand what their mission and vision is, if they have a product or service, slash somewhat some sense of a business model, they know what that is. And they've also gotten to the point where there is some understanding that there needs to be these small working groups that need to exist. And they understand that and they're ready to basically decentralize and make these working groups more autonomous in terms of the authority that they have. And so it's it's really that the most mature DAOs on their decentralization journey are the ones that we're, we're focused on. Can we talk a little bit about the multi-sig? So what I understand about the multi-sig is that they're pretty much like nuclear launch codes, right? In order to launch a nuclear missile, you need like multiple people to verify their identity in, in order for it to go through, right? So a multi-sig is in order to send money, you have to have all the people that are on the multi-sig to agree and authenticate themselves in order to send that to wherever they were trying to send it to, right? So explain that process, how it is today, and why does it need to get better from a user experience standpoint? And why do you need multiple different multi-sigs for different departments? Yeah, I think there's a lot that works with the multi-sig today. I think we wouldn't see $100 billion worth of assets sitting in multi-sigs if it didn't do the job decently. I think the only real gap is that there's, since this is such an important piece of how DAOs are really managing assets, it makes sense to add more polish to it in terms of how does the organization structure itself around these multisigs today, which is really like there's basically a team of people that are stewards of the multisig and managing the assets. And so that organizational and social structure layer just doesn't exist today, really. In our minds at Orca Protocol, like that is the gap is we need to wrap these multisigs with people, which is like a DAO primitive in our mind and make it intuitive and easy to kind of onboard members, offboard members, and make sure that that multi-sig primitive can kind of interact in ways with, and the pod primitive can interact with all of the other apps within the Web3 ecosystem. So it's really kind of that making it more usable from a people perspective and formalizing the relationships between the people. Kind of reminds me of, so our company has, we help people launch white label lab testing solutions, their own brand. And we have organizations and sub-organizations within them. 
And so it's like creating organizations and sub-organizations, linking them to a gnosis or to a key that enables them to do something, but also potentially like setting their permissions is kind of what it sounds like. Is that what it is? Yep. You nailed it. For someone that has never used multi-sig, what is that experience like today? Just so that we can really tangibly understand why it's different than going to Orca. Yeah. So there's a gnosis safe UI and you basically, you go to the UI you basically say create safe. It'll do some stuff in the back end. Now you'll have, you're the only person kind of attached to the safe. And as the safe owner, you can decide within the Gnosis UI, who do I want to add to be basically part of this kind of, multi, you know, require their signatures. And then you can also set the quorum threshold, right? So like of the four of us, how many do we need to sign before we can actually execute a transaction? So it's pretty simple and straightforward. That's it. And if I wanted to add or remove members, I would have to go into the Gnosis UI and basically add or remove a member. There's some other good modules that Gnosis has created to kind of help connect this programmatically to other tools that are out there. But in large part, I think a lot of people will just go into the Gnosis UI and do what they need to do. There's some overhead required to get this working smoothly with all of the other tools in the ecosystem. So in your experience in working with companies, and as you mentioned, that probably already have a down place and are looking for more standardization, normalization, how often do you, when you guys start engaging or looking at their structure and how it's built, are you like, yeah, you guys have a down, like this is good. And how often is it like, oh shoot, there's a lot you guys haven't thought about. How much work goes into education and exploration? In my understanding, you know, DAO is such a new concept and a lot of people I've, I've been talking to are like, oh, you know, we want to implement a DAO, but we have no idea what we're doing. Or it's just like there's layers of brainstorming and all these different things that go into it. So I'd love to learn about like your experience mm -hmm. in that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I say we work with the most mature DAOs, but everything is relative. Like you said, like the space is so new. So even the most mature DAOs and teams that have been doing this for a while still have a lot of room for improvement. And they're still learning a lot about how they should structure how do they make sure that they're involving the broader community? How do they make sure that they have the right safeguards in place just to make sure that things really are decentralized? So there's a lot of right now kind of co-creation and consultation. And, and we have a new product too, right? So we haven't really even found true product market fit yet. So we think there's something here, but we are co-creating with the most mature DAOs right now to make sure that we're supporting them basically in their kind of decentralization journey. There's a lot of that right now. Yeah. And also, a follow-up to that would be when a company or, or an organization is in a DAO structure, because it sounds like Orca is helping them bring that level of specificity and just like the nuance down to like the very, very smallest module or level, right? Like groups mm -hmm. of seven. Is there any instance where for certain groups or for certain pieces of the organization where it does not make sense? to actually have everything because it sounds like there's also layers of say like approval and things they have to do in order to make sure that every decision or even i don't know some some sort of like creating notes around what mm -hmm. they're thinking and decision making processes so is this such that if you are in a DAO structure like it should be as thorough all the way down through porting chain or is there at some point where you guys will be like okay you know this is not a team or a project that we should be including into the DAO structure mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we try and think of DAO scaling as kind of scaling out. So ideally, you're not scaling too far down where you've got one massive product and engineering organization that has team upon team, and you've got like 10 VPs that are just somehow there. And, you know, and it's the space is not that mature where we're not seeing like that scale of organization yet. But yeah, you come with a good point about at a certain point, you either need to find a way to basically matrix the organization in a different way, right? Like maybe you need to think regionally or maybe this is its own business unit and you siphon it off. And there's also gas implications as well, right? Gas fees. So the more layers that you kind of have to trickle down a budget from the Dow Treasury down to marketing to marketing department A, marketing department B, there's these gas implications as well. That's a constraint on really how teams are thinking about structuring their Dow. And so I think that'll change over time with the adoption of layer two and hopefully kind of optimizing gas fees there. But there are some constraints with like how far down a DAO will scale. Makes sense. What are the typical pods that you see 
DAOs form or advise them to basically the implementation of the trickle down that you're talking about? Yeah. So there's a couple of different use cases. One is as an organization, it's here. How do you potify an organization? So you might have a typical, there might be like a partnerships or BD or ecosystem focused pod that is like focused. They have an allocated budget and they're focused on basically kind of spurring and motivating and, and exciting like the broader, their broader developer ecosystem, right? If they're, if it's a DAO with a protocol, you might have a pod that's for a grants committee. So there's a lot of kind of activity that a grants committee would have to do in terms of allocating funds to different project teams or allocating funds externally. So you might want to kind of potify this grants committee and kind of formalize that group and formalize the fact that they have to manage like a decent budget for their, the grants that they're managing. There's also, you know, the other use case that we're trying to support right now is basically potifying meta governance committees. So and we can get into this later, but meta governance is this concept that as a DAO or a protocol, you hold another DAO or protocol's tokens. And since you hold their tokens, you are granted governance rights or voting rights into their protocol. And so there's this new formation and movement of meta governance teams or organizations that are spinning up. And they're kind of this autonomous working group floating unit in the ecosystem. We're basically responsible for being good stewards of protocols and like doing the hard work of basically getting stuff done. And so we're working with some meta governance committees to basically potify those groups, formalize what they represent, formalize the brand, their identity, kind of their interact with all of the tools in the ecosystem. So that's another use case of a group that we would potify is this meta governance committee. I've got lots of thoughts there. There's lots of stuff on meta governance we can talk about. Yeah. I'll ask you more about meta governance in a little bit, but I wanted to bring back one of the things that you said that is different about Web 2 versus Web 3 DAOs is community and how each pod has to answer to the community. So from what I understand, the reason why there is a community is because the DAO is raising money or mm. Ethereum or something like that, right? And so basically people are buying governance tokens with that Ethereum and that's where the money comes from. And so now you have a bunch of community members that own these governance tokens, they're essentially seeing everything happen transparently. And so you've essentially created this public company, even like before it started, because now you have a bunch of shareholders or not shareholders, but you have a bunch of people that have a stake in the DAO, Mm -hmm. right? And so how does that system work? Like what are the decisions that when you own a governance token, like what are the types of decisions that are made? How does governance work when it comes to DAOs? Yeah, how do we define governance? I think governance is the tool that an organization needs to basically determine where power resides and who gets to press what button. That's what governance is. It's it's kind of the container and the framework for who has the authority to make decisions, who has the authority to execute on decisions. That's basically it. It's like that evolving kind of framework and process. So as a token holder today, there's a process for basically proposing improvements to a protocol. So the clear example is with all of the major DeFi protocols that are out there, right? There's Maker, there's Compound, there's Aave. These are kind of the OG DAOs or protocols where basically governance was birthed. And like one of the major governance protocols that exist today is actually the Compound Governor Bravo protocol. So it's a set of smart contracts that a lot of DAOs have forked and they use to basically support their own governance process. And the governance process, it basically exists where you propose a change to the protocol. Some people weigh in, maybe you tweak. In the case of DeFi, maybe you're proposing to add some asset to serve as collateral, right? If you're like a lending protocol. And so it goes where there's like an off-chain kind of sentiment-based discussion, either on a forum or in Discord. And then it moves to maybe like a more formal, but still off-chain poll or vote. So Snapshot is like the tool that everyone uses today where it's off-chain, not going to cost any gas, but we want a more formal vote of yay or nay, are we going to add this asset as collateral to the protocol? Once that's done, and then there is the formal kind of on-chain proposal, which usually has actual code that will be basically automatically implemented to add whatever asset to the protocol. So that's where it's the on-chain proposal, it costs gas, and once it's executed, this is where like the smart contract autonomous bit comes into play, and it'll actually go and update the protocol accordingly. So that's the process of implementing a change within governance. So when we see kind of public companies, you see a lot of hostile takeover type stuff. You see people with misaligned incentives, right? Coming Mm -hmm. in, trying to just make money. Does that happen in DAOs as well? 
I love that you asked this because I was ready to talk about it. So one of the major issues that we all know about within the DAO space today is that token weighted voting is really not the way. Anyone could basically buy a token off of any exchange. And now they've got rights to vote and propose changes to the protocol. And that's just not really within the Web3 ethos in terms of inclusivity to all parties. It basically rewards those that have financial capital and can afford to buy a bunch of tokens and propose whatever they want to the protocol. And there's some controversy as to like, if someone does that, is that considered a governance attack or is that just kind of leveraging the system in the way that it is and it exists. And so we saw some examples of this actually, even just as recently as like earlier in February, you know, there was Justin Sun, who is, I think he was the founder of the Tron blockchain. Justin Sun is basically a billionaire kind of crypto mogul, and he founded his own blockchain. He's also a part of a, another protocol where he's got a stable coin called True USD. And so in early February, he basically bought 90,000 compound tokens and he wanted to list tr his stablecoin true usd as a collateral asset on compound so he bought a bunch of tokens which is fully within his right to do with the goal of proposing a vote and hopefully reaching enough quorum to get it passed to get that asset listed as collateral on compound so i don't think in that case like it actually passed but there was a lot of kind of noise there was a whole kerfluffle about it because people were just kind of alarmed that he went and did this. And he, he had actually, in October, he had submitted like this off-chain, we talked about kind of the off-chain sentiment gathering forum post. So in earlier in October last year, he submitted a forum post to basically ask the community if they were interested in listing true USD as, a, as an asset. And it got the forum post apparently got like three replies. No one really cared. The community wasn't into it. And the forum post just kind of died. And then come around in February of this year, out of nowhere, basically, he buys up 90,000 compound tokens and is trying to push the on-chain proposal, right? Because you need a certain amount of tokens to actually propose an on-chain proposal. So he's kind of bypassing this off-chain community sentiment gathering process and just saying, I've got my incentives. I got kind of my own prerogative here. Let me see if I can just push this through. And so that's an example of kind of the downfalls of token-weighted voting that we're seeing. I don't consider that a governance attack. Like that's well within his right to do, but that's really not like a long-term incentive-aligned maneuver. For some, it can be seen as like a governance attack. Like it just, he could have done that in a better way. But that's an example of where things can go wrong with token-weighted voting. There's a lot of open space for politics then when it comes to governance and DAOs. I know that there was a recent controversy with ENS as well, right? Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Basically, I, I don't know if, if the listeners know about the context here with ENS, but basically one of the leaders and operators of the ENS protocol, there were some transphobic, homophobic tweets that had surfaced from this individual. And it basically rubbed the community the wrong way. And ENS, the core team, was kind of forced to come to a decision of how do they handle this. There's a difference there because you, as a leader of a DAO, you also have responsibility to basically act within good faith of your supporters and your community contributors and your users. And if there's a misalignment in terms of, as a leader, how you act towards your community, then you basically need to part ways. And so in the case of ENS, there was this misalignment between this leader of ENS and the community. And... I think it was very short-lived, thankfully. And so there was basically like a separation. The tricky thing with the case of ENS DAO is that they, they actually didn't have the right, basically the DAO wasn't mature enough where they ha actually had the right structures to offboard this individual from the DAO. So this individual was a part of the core team. The core team wasn't fully transitioned to the DAO. So even though the community had begun to kind of spun up and voice the opinion, like there actually wasn't anything they could really do. It was more of the core team figuring out, okay, well, I think we just part ways with this individual. So that's a scenario where ideally ENS maybe had been more mature in their kind of DAO decentralization journey. And then the community could have directly voted to do whatever they wanted to do, but it was a little too early. So it was basically up to the core team to handle that. So ENS is responsible for the .eth addresses. Yep. And so worldchain.eth, that's ENS protocol. Maybe you can help me explain what happened because I saw that with the ENS protocol, you don't actually directly vote, right? You, if you have governance tokens, you basically give that 
authority to vote to somebody that you represents you. So you have, there's now this list of, I don't even know what they call delegates. them. Like delegates, right? Yep. Where people, it's kind of an interesting model where you have a bunch of delegates and you place your government's tokens on that delegate. And based on how many delegates or how many government tokens that delegate has, they can vote based on their, mm -hmm. their weighting, right? And so I think Brownlee was the first number one and then Coinbase mm -hmm. was number two. And as this whole controversy was happening, you could see people move their government tokens off of Brandly and moving them onto like Coinbase or another delegate. And so it was mm -hmm. almost like politics almost in that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Yeah. So in the case of ENS DAO, like this was basically the only action that the DAO and the community contributors could actually take in this scenario, right? Is, well, if we have a disagreement with this individual and his views, all we can really do is redelegate the governance rights that we've granted him to someone else. And so I think that's what we did. And we saw a big drop in his governance power. And yeah, your concept around kind of politicians, I think I've got a whole, I'm ready for a rant on delegates, but we've heard the term protocol politicians where there's going to be individuals that will be basically good at either promoting a protocol or really just being good stewards of the protocol in terms of having strategic and operational oversight. And so these individuals, I think, will be highly sought after because there's only so many individuals that have the capability, the competence, the bandwidth to really serve in kind of these elevated, kind of distinguished roles for protocols. But we've also seen, I think, kind of some shortcomings with individual delegates. And so ideally, you could delegate to someone and they would actually do a decent job and participate in governance and support the protocol in whichever ways it needs to be supported. But in some research that I did for this piece that I wrote for Orca last fall, we actually noticed that in the case of Compound, three quarters of all of the delegates, so individuals that had been delegated governance rights, had never actually voted on chain. And so it's kind of the 80-20 rule where actually 20% of the delegates hold 80% of the voting power, given this token-weighted model, but still 80% of the individual wallets had never voted on chain. So we're actually seeing that. And this is kind of like the progression of DAOs, right? We had DAOs. Everyone thought that they could participate in every decision. We realized that's not realistic. We decided, hey, maybe we can delegate to individuals and the individuals will do a decent job at representing us. And what we're finding is that based on token-weighted voting, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. If three quarters of the individuals we delegate to don't vote on chain, I don't think that's a good model. So the individual delegate system, I think, is going to start to go away. And you're going to start to see now the rise of meta-governance committees, where it's formalized, established, podified groups of people that are responsible for the stewardship and the governance of protocols. And I think it's just a more scalable way. These committees, their brands and identities basically revolve around their ability to basically do the hard work of getting shit done in protocols. And so I think the incentives are aligned. I think the accountability mechanisms are more aligned. It's more scalable. So we're going to kind of shift away from individual delegate protocol politicians, I think, to like these basically parties, right? It's like meta-governance committees that will be responsible for, they'll have stakeholders, they'll have constituents, but it'll be kind of this hardened group of individuals responsible for doing the good work within DAOs. So that's my take on the evolving role of delegates. So then now you have these meta-governance DAOs that are acting as delegates. How do we have a stake in the meta-governance DAOs? How are the incentives aligned between the actual community members and the meta-governance DAOs? These meta-governance DAOs and committees, they will hold tokens of protocols that we as community contributors and users are also invested in as retail investors. So there's a couple ways, but I think as individual retail investors, we can also continue to delegate our own governance rights. So that's like one way that you can kind of enact on who you approve of. But yeah, I think like the retail community contributors will basically have to voice their opinion either through delegation or through some sort of formal election process of some sort of council group that supports the protocol or similar. Are you familiar with like the curve wars? I am not super familiar. I know about it. I know that there's a war going on with in the curve world. Yeah. So I wanted to preface this by saying I know nothing about DeFi. I've asked a lot of my friends to explain curve wars to me and they've patiently explained curve wars many times to me like a good friend and I've retained maybe five to ten percent of understanding and so I'll do my best 
So Curve is a decentralized exchange similar to Uniswap or SushiSwap. The difference between a decentralized exchange and a centralized exchange like Coinbase or FTX is Coinbase operates similar to kind of like the stock market companies where they're an order book, meaning that you're buying or selling from another person, right? And so there's someone that's trying to buy um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, and then someone's trying to sell Bitcoin or Ethereum on the other side. And then Coinbase is like a, a middleman that makes those that transaction happen between the two. Decentralized exchanges is a little bit different in that they don't have somebody on their side. Instead, you're buying or selling from their liquidity pool. And what a liquidity pool is, basically it's just a bunch of cryptocurrency that's locked in, a, in their smart contract. And you're not buying or selling from a person, you're basically buying or selling from this liquidity pool. And how they get the liquidity pool is there's individuals that are basically providing that liquidity, meaning that you can lock your Ethereum, Bitcoin, or whatever it is into a specific liquidity pool. So there's like a Bitcoin, Ethereum liquidity pool, for example. And then you basically have an equal amount of Bitcoin, have an equal amount of Ethereum, and then you basically lock it into this liquidity pool. And anytime there's a transaction, anytime decentralized exchanges make money from the transaction fees, you get percentage of that because you've given liquidity to this liquidity pool. And so that's a decentralized exchange. Curve is a decentralized exchange only for stable coins. USDC, UST, all these different types of stable coins, right? And anytime there's a swap between different stable coins, Curve gets a percentage of like the transaction fee, right? And anybody who provides liquidity to the decentralized exchange Curve, the person that provides liquidity also gets a percentage of the transaction fee in Curve, the CRV in a token, right? And the special thing about Curve is that if you basically lock up your Curve tokens, you can get these governance tokens. And with these governance tokens, you have special voting rights. And these voting rights allow you to do certain things, but the main thing it allows you to do is choose which liquidity pool gets the most rewards. With your governance tokens, you can actually vote which liquidity pool has the most percentage that you can be earned, meaning that everyone starts chasing that liquidity pool, meaning that everyone, because that the liquidity pool now has more higher rewards, everyone's going to basically lend to the liquidity pool. So let's say, for example, it was USDC and DAI, right? Then basically people would start buying up USDC, people start buying up DAI just to lend to that liquidity pool because there's more rewards. And so because there's so much power in pointing people to buying up the tokens, there was a war buying up these governance tokens because anybody that actually created these stable coins, like Justin Sun, for example, would want people to buy up his stable coins so that he's going to try to basically buy up as much of these governance tokens to point to the liquidity pool where his tokens are, right? And so then you start getting these crazy wars between people buying up governance tokens. You have these entire entities like, I think, Convex, who are just basically accumulating these governance tokens. And then people that own Convex's governance tokens can now, now have the power to point the rewards in whatever liquidity pool that Curve has. And so you have stacks and stacks and stacks of governance tokens of control and trying to basically get people to buy whatever it is that they want to do, right? And so there's this whole ecosystems of governance and all this like that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's super interesting article and maybe you can share it in the show notes after, but Faye protocol and index protocol and Ave protocol, there was like this kind of trifecta, basically a, a series of actions that took place late last year where Really, it was like this leveraged meta-governance play where Faye was interested in, I think, listing their token or asset on Aave. But basically, the amount of Aave tokens required to propose an Aave proposal was like out of their budget or something, right? Like some crazy high amount of money. But Faye realized that they could essentially go through index protocol. And index is basically like an ETF. So they hold a bunch of tokens in their index funds. And so they basically found a cheaper way to get the proposal to list Faye onto Aave by buying index tokens, proposing this on index. And then because index basically has the Aave tokens, now they've got to say an index and index has the say in Aave. So they kind of did this like leveraged meta governance play to work towards their end goal. And overall, it was a success. And I think compared to Justin Sun, who basically tried to like brute force his way to push a proposal through like the Faye team and the index team actually worked with the Ave team and each other over the course of months to kind of align the community, talk about the goals, 
talk about why it's kind of a positive sum win for all of them. And they did it this way, but it was all within their right to do it that way. But we'll see a lot of this leveraged meta governance action in the future, I think. Yeah, it's funny you guys are talking about this because I was with some crypto people yesterday, actually, uh, at a meetup in Taipei. And some of them were talking about they're involved in certain DAOs in DeFi that were kind of doing what you're talking about, Will. And there's also apparently a lot of behind the scenes negotiations between the DAOs like potential bribery, et cetera, in order to get them to be aligned. And so that, you know, obviously there's a lot of money that's sloshing around. But ultimately, in my perspective, you know, because a lot of people that perhaps are just getting their feet wet into whether it's just Web3 in general or crypto, see a lot of these characteristics as being these negative incentives or reasons why they're doubtful or hesitant about being supportive of this movement or trend. And I think ultimately... A lot of people that are in DeFi came from the finance world, you know, and it's just simply they're just bringing what was already happening, you know, in large institutional, whether finance institutions Mm -hmm. or banks and whatever, and just porting it over. Right. And I think it's going to take time to build guidelines, regulation, et cetera. And I think DAOs, in essence, is a way of making a better environment for everyone that's going to be in this space. Mm -hmm. The question I had was, what are some of the perhaps misconceptions that you're seeing, Dan? even from currently existing DAOs or people that are looking to get into this space or create a DAO, what are some of the largest issues or notions that you think are important to bring Mm. to light or for them to talk about, think about? Yeah, I think the most important thing for DAOs is you need to set up or have an opinion on kind of the structure and the rails in which the DAO will kind of run on early on, right? So whether it's okay, we're going to have a completely open and permissionless DAO where any contributor can come on board and pick up a task or a bounty and kind of contribute right away. Or are you going to have a little more permissioned and, and gated onboarding for contributors where there's it's maybe a little more intimate, a little more handholding, but they're onboarded kind of quickly to higher responsibility projects. I think having that opinion of what's your stance for how you onboard community members and contributors is important. And then there's just a lot of basic organizational processes and hygiene and housekeeping that you need to set up right away. And and we're doing this with our Orca Protocol community right now, where we are trying to spin up our community initiative. And we had a lot of excited and eager community contributors early on. And we started to create these missions and milestones for the team. Well, we realized that we didn't have some of the basics around what are the explicit working agreements between the teams? What are the missions? How do we add members to the pods? How do we remove members from the pods? How do the pods work together? If we wanted to kind of create a new working group, what does that look like? So a lot of these basic frameworks and structures for how the DAO should operate, like these working agreements, as we're calling them, those need to be in place early, earlier, sooner than later. And these working agreements, are they just basically agreed upon protocols like for humans to go through when they're doing things? Yeah. Yes, us humans. We need to understand how we're going to operate and work with each other. And those need to be explicit. And if they're not explicit, then who knows what Andrew's going to do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because Nothing good. <laughs> I think COVID really pushed this forward, right? And, and the reason why I say that is because I was a remote first company before COVID. At the time, we were doing it because we didn't have that much money and we were forced to hire out of California. And so it was very uncool at the time. But then all of a sudden now, everyone's doing it now. And I feel like more cool. <laughs> but when we first started it, we were following the example of companies like Zapier, right? And the way that you create these remote first companies is everything has to be written down. The protocols have to be written. And so when someone is onboarding, they know exactly what to do. They know where to go. Nothing has to be repeated twice, right? And so it's a much more intentional way mm-hmm. of organizing because you have to, because no one actually knows each other and no one actually can ask questions in person, right? And so they have to have like a guidebook. Before you actually build an organization or start a project, everything has to be written down first instead of like kind of just kind of going along as an in-person company. So because COVID pushed everyone now to a remote work first company, I'm seeing a lot of the necessity to transform themselves into more of a protocol driven human company, right? Where there's a lot more intention in terms of how things work before you start onboarding people. Yep. Yeah, I love your comment there. Like, that's why I'm basically bullish on DAOs and the whole Web3 space more than anything is that never before have we seen this many people 
so excited and so intentional about building the right frameworks and processes for how we organize, how we work together, how we make decisions. I've never seen it at this scale before. And I think that's one of the big reasons why we can all be excited about the future of this space. Yeah, totally. Just for folks listening who might want to learn more, do you have any favorite articles or resources Mm -hmm. on those baseline DAO agreements that you're already talking about? There's an organization called The Ready, which is kind of this organizational design, self-managing org company. So we can share that in the show notes. They're building a new tool to kind of help house these working agreements. We're starting to put these in place for the Orcanaut. Our community contributors are called Orcanauts at Orca. So they're a great resource. They've got a podcast called Brave New Work. I listen to a bunch of podcasts, but but like the Ready is kind of the big one for the working agreements. Awesome. Thanks. Who or what companies are you admiring in the Web3 space right now? Mm. Oh, man. There's so many. I'm a big fan of the Ready. They're actually doing the hard work of a lot of the focus on this space is kind of on the technical layer, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done kind of at the people layer of retraining us all on how we think and work. So the Ready is an amazing consultative organization helping DAOs out right now. In terms of DAOs, there's so much good work that's happening out there. Like I'm super impressed with the Forefront team and Carolyn and Jihad there just being super intentional with how they're thinking about the community and setting themselves up for success. So the ready forefront, there's so many that I'm missing, but those are kind of two top of mind right now. Brad, if you were going to interview someone, who would your favorite interview be right now? Oh, man. I mean, we know Wills is Andrew Yang, so you can't use that I can't use that. Probably Obama. I'm also, I guess, keeping it kind of in the political sphere, but Obama just seems like a chill dude. (laughs) Play some basketball first. Play some basketball. He, he'd probably have a couple of stories. So <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. Lots of juicy content. Awesome. Love it. So Dan, if people wanted to find out more about Orca Protocol, where do they go? It's at Orca Protocol on Twitter. From there, you'll find our Discord. There's a website. You can find me on Twitter at It's Dan Wu on the interweb somewhere. You'll find us. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 